Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. And this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19 and uh, chapter 20. We're just continuing uh, through the book of Matthew, which we've been in for, for quite some time. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one and you don't, you'd like to follow along, you'd like to take one home, we have some on these back tables. You're welcome to just pick one up and take one. They're for you, so uh, feel free to grab one of those. If you would, let's just uh, open up with a word of prayer. Our Father, we just thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity that you've given uh, to, to come, and we thank you that you've gathered us by the name of Jesus Christ to, to hear the gospel and to... Uh, to hear the gospel and to proclaim the gospel to one another and to go back out from this place remembering and proclaiming the gospel. We pray that this would be a time of worship. We pray that you would be uh, praised, that you would be glorified in our time together. And Father, I pray as we are totally dependent on you this morning and we're totally dependent on you at all times, I pray that you'd uh, make me dependent on you now. I depend on you that you would say what you would have said that you would have each of our, hear, our ears hear what you would have us hear, that you would speak to our hearts, that it would be opened up to know and comprehend what is the love that Jesus Christ has for each one of us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, we're in uh, Matthew uh, 19 and 20. That's two chapters. And uh, as we enter Matthew 19 through 20 and we start this new series called Lent, uh, we are actually leaving we're, we're, uh, we've come to a point where Jesus and his disciples are leaving the ministry in Galilee and heading towards Jerusalem and towards the cross, which we've seen coming for quite some time. Now, this journey that uh, takes place in these couple chapters would have taken several months, probably even up, upwards of six months, but Matthew only dedicates these two chapters to the journey. Uh, and, and as these chapters come directly after Jesus' community prescription, which uh, Brent covered over the last couple weeks, Matthew uses these chapters, these few passages, to expand on how Jesus, uh, Jesus leads us into restored community and to take us, he uses them to take us, the audience, from Galilee to Jerusalem with our eyes turned towards the coming cross of Jesus Christ. As I was preparing for this and as I've been reading and studying this passage over the last week or so, I was reminded of a practice that I've been doing with my kids. And just hear me say this first, I have really great kids. All three of them are great. They're well-behaved. Hear me say that. But they're kids, right? And so, of course, they resort to all sorts of whining and crying to try to get what they want, as all kids do. And, and often, this is the craziest part, sometimes they cry or just fall on the floor and start screaming, like, dramatically, before they even ask me for what they want or what they need, right? And it's absolutely, it's absolutely absurd to, to act like that. So, of course, because of that behavior, we're not, we don't want them to do that when they're an adult. So, so we tell them, hey, you can't whine and cry and get what you want, but they don't hear that, right? They don't hear that, and it doesn't seem to make a difference. And honestly, it can be a little frustrating not knowing how to get through, the, through to them. But as I stepped back and thought more about what was happening in those moments, not every time, but in oftentimes, it occurred to me that they have a lot of the same tendencies that I do that I'm never satisfied, I'm never content with what I have, there's never the right thing on my plate or enough on my plate, right? Like, Dad, I wanted macaroni cheese and you gave me chicken nuggets. I'm never satisfied in the same way. I'm never content. And so my initial response to my children is to discipline them in some way, which is good, but it could also be bad depending on where it's coming in 
coming out of me from, right? But I started pulling them aside and talking to them. Now, there's no reasoning with a two, three, and four-year-old in my experience thus far, right? You can't actually reason with the children. Uh, but So I don't even try to go there. But what I do have tried to do is just chart... Uh, changing the conversation a little bit. And I started asking them questions. We pull them aside, just to ask them the question, what are you grateful for? What are you thankful for? And they know what that means, and they like to do that because we do it at prayer time before bed, and they like to, like, they are thankful for the craziest stuff. But, so I st- just pull them aside and start asking them what they're thankful for. And this doesn't work every time. I'm not saying I'm a great parent. It's not 100%. But when it works, it's pretty awesome to watch their dis- disposition change from like screaming and crying on the floor to smiles as they thank God for unicorns and zebras and giraffes and mommy and daddy and Bubba and sissy and Jesus, right? And when it works, like I said, it doesn't always work, but when it works, we get to talk about how we can be thankful for everything and we can stop asking for more because we have so much already. And because Jesus is all that we need, we don't have to continue to ask for more. We get to go there sometimes. Now, we as adults, we clean it up a bit, right? We don't act like kids. We don't fall on the floor crying or making a big scene, but I'm a big baby, just like they are. And I I imagine we all are. We're all big babies. We all face the tension of wanting more than what we have, never being satisfied, never being content. And if we aren't at rest, if we're not content, if we don't have peace with where God has us and what he's given us, We can't ever really give generously of ourselves, right? Because we can't afford the sacrifice. Because if we sacrifice something, if we give something away of ourselves, then we'll have less and we actually want more, So, and all we want is more. So it hurts to sacrifice. We can't ever really give generously of ourselves if we're not content and at peace with what we already have. So as I've been teaching my kids to be thankful, I've been preaching to myself, and I've been going through this, I've just been preaching to myself, right? To count my blessings, to give thanks. And to operate from an attitude of gratitude, a heart of gratitude that will lead me into a heart of generosity. Now, over, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're going to cover two chapters, uh, 19 and 20. But, but where I want us to dial in on is Matthew 20, uh, verse 17 through 20. Matthew 20, 17 through 20, and we'll read it in just a bit. But there's two things that I want us to get from this. I want us to consider how this passage and how this, these couple chapters instructs us in community by addressing our posture before God and towards others. I want us to consider how it instructs us in community by addressing our posture before God and towards others. And then number two is I want us to look at this passage as we're led toward and into the season of Lent together as a church. This particular passage uh, is, is the foretelling of Jesus' death. It's the third time in the last few chapters where we've seen him uh, foretell his, resur- his, res- his death and resurrection. Uh, and it's as Jesus continues to set our eyes towards the coming cross. We've paused, actually, I don't know if you've realized it, but over the, during the time between Christmas and Lent, we've paused each time we've run into these, these uh, scenes and we've read them separately. We've paused to read each one uh, as a reminder that Jesus, who was fully God, humbled himself, took on flesh, became fully man, and then we celebrated Christmas, when, at Christmas we celebrated his birth and how it signaled that God was with us, that he was coming to fulfill his promises. But the work of Christ on earth wasn't over at Christmas. We said that then, we've said it since then. It was just the beginning. And from our celebration of his birth at Christmas, if we truly understand what 
uh, it means for Jesus to be Christ, then we have to begin to look to the cross intentionally. There's more celebration to come, but first there's the death of Jesus. And this is how we enter the season of Lent, which begins this Wednesday. Uh, traditionally, we haven't, we haven't really celebrated Lent at Redemption Church on purpose. We're, we're trying to this year. So uh, it begins this Wednesday, Wednesday, and we enter into it just remembering the coming cross. It was necessary for our sal- sal- salvation. We also remember our brokenness and our helplessness before God. We also remember the work of redemption that he has accomplished on our behalf. Lent's a season of like posturing of the heart. And I hope you'll consider kind of engaging in this season with us and observing Lent through fasting and devotion. We have some resources on our website and on our blog you can check out. But Let's read this verse in Matthew 20, 17 through 20. It says this. Matthew 20, 17 through 20. It's the third foretelling of Jesus' death. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Now in these two chapters, we're gonna see that Jesus addresses a number of issues, uh, specifically sanctity of marriage, valuing the kingdom over our own status, our own wealth, our rewards or our rank. But all those things, they they all reveal the hardness of our hearts before God and towards, and towards others and how, and how our hearts are hard because our heart does not treasure Jesus and his kingdom foremost and first. We haven't sought first his kingdom and his righteousness. And Jesus' foretelling his death in the midst of all these issues that he raises in these two chapters should point us, to check our, point us back to checking our hearts, to stop and to look to Jesus and his cross and his resurrection, his work of redemption, And to ask ourselves, as I've been asking my kids, what do you have to be thankful for? How have you already been blessed? Are you living from a heart of gratitude or indulgence? Are we treasuring Jesus and his kingdom first? Are we treasuring something else? Are we depending on something else? We should ask, and Jesus lays it on pretty thick in these chapters, so we need to be asking of the hard things that he says Do we trust what God says is truly best for us? Do we trust what God says is truly best for us? Or do we think we know better? Let's just take a closer look. Excuse me. Much of what Jesus covers in these passages has been covered already in the Sermon on the Mount and his ministry in Galilee. So we're not going to cover every single issue and like break every part of it open because we've gone over a lot of that. But there's a few particular things that I want us to take a look at. And this first scene kind of, at the beginning of chapter 19, kind of sets the tone for the next couple of chapters. And guess who it starts with? The Pharisees, because they start everything. Uh, So, of course, the Pharisees, they start things off. They come trying to test Jesus with questions about when it's lawful to divorce. It's in Matthew 19, 3 through 9. And I love how Jesus answers them, and you're probably familiar with how he answers them, so I'm going to read this. It's in, uh, like I said, it's in, uh, I think it's in Matthew 6. I'm not sure. All right, Matthew 19, 6. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his mother, I mean his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So if you've been to a wedding, you've heard that. 
the Pharisees think that they've got Jesus trapped, though, at this point. So they push a little further and like, oh, really? Is that that's the thing? Like, they're never supposed to separate because of the thing? Well, Moses said it's lawful. Why did Moses say it's lawful if it's not lawful? And then Jesus lays it down. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. There's just a couple things to see right off the bat. In Jesus' answer to the Pharisees, he says he didn't come to restore things back to the way that they were in the times of Moses. Jesus didn't come to do that. Jesus came to restore hearts back to the way they were created to be from the beginning, back before the fall. The law was given because hearts were hard, without regard for God. And the law was a loving gift from God to guide broken people towards living as they were created to live to keep them from completely self-destructing, right? And so the disciples afterward press in on how hard Jesus' answer in, in saying this is in, in verse 10 and 12. And we're going to look at that. Verse 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. That seems kind of foreign to me. I mean, he's just saying like, anyways, that seems a little ridiculous. But the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. You see, the disciples' hesitancy and the difficulty they had with Jesus' teaching reveals their own hardness of heart. And that maybe they actually think that they know what's best, not what not that God knows what's best. But Jesus is pushing back by revealing that the very thing that they think of as unthinkable, being not married or being single, can actually be a calling and a gift for those who treasure the kingdom over all else. Maybe we need to hear that. Maybe we do need to hear that. Marriage, being together, we, should, we can't value that over the kingdom. We can't value that over Jesus. For some who treasure the kingdom over all else, it may be a gift to be single. He's showing that what God says and how God created us to treasure him over all else is best and will give us the most joy and the satisfaction no matter what our circumstances are on earth. But we're so hardened that in our wisdom we can't often see it and we often won't choose his ways choose our own. So honestly, this kind of sets the tone for the chapter and from the rest, for the rest of the trip to Jerusalem in Matthew's narrative, we just see Jesus going to work on guiding their hearts towards righteousness that's even greater than that of the Pharisees, which he said back in the Sermon on the Mount was necessary. And he does this by pressing in on some of the hardest parts of the human heart. We're just going to take a quick look at some of those. And in, my, in, in chapter 19, 13 through 15, Jesus starts dealing with status and how we place that, we value that over the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus reveals how our hearts are hard and tend to revalue status above the kingdom and that it's actually easier to enter the kingdom as a little child, that is, somebody without status, somebody who's not already lifted up, who doesn't have a status to protect. It's easier for them to enter the kingdom as a child. And there's a lot of metaphor and depth to how Jesus accepts the little ones with open arms, but, and Brent covered that over the last couple of weeks, actually. But it absolutely, for us, should challenge our heart's desire for status. The way he takes these who have no status to protect and says they can come should absolutely challenge our heart's desire for status and our tendency to cast away those who can't actually be used to boost up our own status. We have a tendency to do that. This is an ugly look into our hearts, but it's there. And even in our very church, it should challenge us in a very practical way, I think. It should challenge how we pursue the hearts of the actual children among us with the gospel. There's a whole hallway full of kids back there who need Jesus and need the gospel. It should actually challenge us. It should really push in on us how we pursue the hearts of those kids with the love of Jesus. So Jesus presses in a little on how we value our status above the kingdom. And then in chapter 19, verse 16 through 29, we find the pretty well-known story, so you may have heard it, of the encounter with the rich young ruler. You probably know the story. This very wealthy young man Uh, comes to Jesus asking what he must do to have eternal life and Jesus tells him to go and to obey the commands and then he lists the last six of the Ten Commandments, those that have to do with how we relate to one another, how we love one another, how we uh, are postured towards one another and then the young man says that he's kept those, what else do I lack? And Jesus tells him in verse 21, he says, well sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Of course, the tragedy happens in verse 22. When the, young man heard, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It isn't hard in this story for us to see that Jesus is pushing in on how our hearts are hard when it comes to our wealth and our possessions. We want to keep our stuff, and we want more of it. And I can pretty much guarantee that we're all like this. We don't trust that his ways are actually best for us and that he can provide and take care of us, not just today, but like into eternity. There's something in us that says, well, I could be saved and he's gonna take care of me for eternity, but he can't save me and take care of me now. And that's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous, but we don't trust that his ways are actually best for us and that he can provide and take care of us from now into eternity. We don't start from his wisdom. We start from our own and we try to get God to be cool with the things that our flesh wants. And Jesus presses in on his disciples and I think on us in, uh, in verse 23 through 26 and he makes it clear that there's only one way and that it's hard for us. He says this, 23 through 26. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You need to hear that this morning. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, with hardened hearts that just get harder, the wealthier and the more comfortable we get, It really seems impossible to be saved if saved means having to give everything away. 
it may sound romantic in some context to like get wealthy and give it all the way for the sake of the poor, for the sake of whatever. But even in those romantic contexts, the glory is for ourselves and we still just want more glory. We're willing to trade our wealth for somebody to recognize our heroism and our, our own greatness. Wealth and possessions can get in the way of our ability to trust God. They can make us believe that we can stand up on our own and that we don't need him. Few of us would say that with our mouth, but lots of us would probably practice and live out that way. But Jesus came to make the impossible possible. No, we can't save ourselves. No, we can't do it on our own. But Jesus came to make the impossible possible. And this story about wealth and, and about the rich young ruler isn't about how much money you're allowed to have or how many things you're allowed to have. That's not what it's about. It's about asking the question, do you really treasure the kingdom? Do you really treasure Jesus and his kingdom most? Do you really trust that what God says is truly best for you is best? Or do you really think that maybe you know better? Which way are you living? What does your treasure, what does your heart treasure most? Is it his ways or your own? Is it my ways or my own? So Peter, he seems to get, he's starting to catch on to what Jesus is getting at, right? And, uh, but then also he's a loud mouth, right? We already know this. We've seen it several times. And he starts speaking up and he's like, hey, <laughs> well, let's get, you know, and Jesus said back in Matthew 15 that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. You remember that? And he says it a few other times as well. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And Peter's like, hey, we left everything and followed you. He's starting to pick it up. But then he's like, so what do we get? What then will we have? We left everything and followed you. What then will we have? That's in verse 27. And he exposes how broken our hearts are in the deepest, darkest places, in the deepest, darkest ways. Jesus really digs in on this particular heart issue with Peter and the disciples as we kind of enter into chapter 20 because that's coming right off of this, this thing that Peter said. What do we get? And he enters into chapter 20 with the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Maybe you remember this parable. And maybe you remember as we've gone through a few parables, even in the book of Matthew, we've talked about how when Jesus would preach with parables, he was trying to uh, invoke a response from the hearers, invoke a particular response as what parables were used for. And I think in this parable that we're about to look at, uh, Jesus is speaking to expose the areas of his disciples' hearts that are still not treasuring the kingdom first, still not submitted to his empowering presence and lordship, as we say around here often. So he tells the story of the master of the house who hires some laborers to work for the day in the vineyard. Maybe you know this, right? And he, sa- he goes and he hires them for a denarius. Now, we don't use denarius around here, so we'll just, just say it's 100 bucks, okay? So the master of the house needs some people to work in the vineyard, and he goes and hires somebody to work in the vineyard for 100 bucks. Later, in the day, a few hours later, he realizes that he actually needs some more workers if he's going to get this job done. So he goes back to hire some more laborers, right? And he offers them 100 bucks, and then they come and work. And this kind of goes on throughout the day. And then at the very end of the day, there's a couple hours left, and the master of the house gets some more workers to come just work a couple hours. And then when they're all done, he brings them in and he pays everybody, and they all get $100. And that just does not sit well with that first group who worked all day for the same $100. But the master addresses his critics, and it's in, verse, it's in chapter 20, verse 13 through 15. He says, I love that he opens it up with friend. He says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. 
Do you not agree with me for a de- did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed? Am I, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you, or do you begrudge my generosity? I've heard this a hundred times, a thousand times, maybe I've heard this, and, and there was often times where I was like, yeah, but that doesn't really seem fair, dude, right? But you know what? We want, we always want. We're never satisfied. We're never okay and content. And we want reward and we want glory, even at the expense of others, at the expense of everyone else. And we're self-righteous. We really think a lot of ourselves I think some of us, maybe even me, we hide it and pretend like we don't, but deep down we think we deserve something. Our heart's posture is prone to like stand up and demand of God our rights. To tell him what we've earned and expect something from him. But here's the truth. We haven't any rights except to death. We were created to live and living looks like God says it does. Anything else than what he says it looks like is death. And I just want us to hear this. Contrary to what the world will say to you and me, we do not have the power to decide and change the definition of life. We're created. We don't have the power to decide what life is or what it looks like. You don't get to say what rights you have. You don't get to say what you've earned. You don't get to say what your rights are in front of God. Your only right is to live for the glory of God in all things because that's what you were created to do. And if you've ever faltered in that, which you have and I have and I do, then you've forsaken life and you've chosen death. So anything that you do that follows his commands, any of the good stuff, like when you actually do listen and you follow his commands, that doesn't earn you something, right? Anytime you follow his commands, like, like giving away everything and following him, you won't earn, it doesn't earn you a thing and gives us no new rights. Our ability to live as he instructs and glorify God is a gift that he's given us, the ability that he's given us. It's a grace for us. And we're like these who would like be like, hey, but we're all day. We, we, you owe us. You owe us, God. Our hearts are hard. And our posture before him is prone to even attempt to take his rights away. Our posture before God, our natural broken posture before God is to take the rights of God away for ourselves. And that's a nasty business. It's a nasty place to be. It's full of strife. It's full of brokenness. And so, having dug into the depths of the heart, where we would even oppose God, insisting that we're owed something. Jesus kind of exposes that we're owed nothing and that a heart that treasures Jesus and his kingdom will be a heart fully satisfied and content in him. And so we move to this this verse that I said I want us to just kind of dial in on. Jesus takes his disciples aside in verse 20, in chapter 20, verse 17 through 19. And he points them towards his death and resurrection when he'll pay on their behalf what they cannot pay where what is owed will be forgiven and where the impossible will be made, where the impossible will be made possible. And this is where he points them. And Jesus, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, 
we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then we just move into this, this scene right after that. kind of clarifies it. It serves to clarify the truth that his death and resurrection will pay on our behalf what we cannot pay or what is owed will be forgiven and what is impossible will be made possible. So we just move into this in, in Matthew uh, 20, 20 through 28. It serves to clarify the truth, really presses in on how redeemed hearts are called and shaped to be a community on mission or what we always call missional community, not just like our groups, but how redeemed hearts are called and shaped to be a missional community with one another by following the instruction and example of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 20 through 28, this is how the story goes. The mother of James and John comes and she kneels before Jesus asking that her two sons get to sit at the right and the left-hand side of Jesus as he rules in his kingdom. And Jesus, knowing that she just doesn't get it and that they just don't get it, he asks if they could take the cup that he's about to take, the one he just foretold about, right? They kind of demonstrate their misunderstanding still say, yes, we could take that cup. But they have really no idea what they're asking for. But again, it's the hard parts of their heart. It's the hardest parts of their heart where they are really concerned about their rank and their status, their being honored, that's revealed in their, in their request. And Jesus presses in on that. Another hard, hard, dark place that is in most of our hearts, if, if not all of our it's in chapter 20, 25 through 28. Jesus presses in and says this to them. He called to them and said, You know that rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus throughout these two chapters, we're kind of wrapping up here. Jesus throughout these two chapters has been repeating it over and over again. He's actually been repeating this sentiment over and over again. In, uh, in chapter 19, verse 14, when he's talking about letting the children come, he says, let the little children, that's the ones without status, those who are last, let them come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then in uh, chapter 19, verse 30, he says, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And then in chapter 20, verse 16, he says, so the last will be first, and the first last. And then here, we see it again. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, our hard, broken, self-serving hearts will always be prone to want to be first among others. But Jesus stepped down from heaven and put on flesh and blood. And he humbled himself. He was fully God and he stepped down, he put on man and he humbled himself to be a ransom for many. And he didn't do that to honor any one of us among, above any other. Not to honor one of us over another, but to restore us into a God-glorifying, image-bearing, Christ-proclaiming body. And this isn't about rank. It's about Jesus being first. Jesus is first. 
His kingdom looks nothing like any man-made kingdom. Anything that we would think of, like where everybody's filed into ranks and you got a perfect org chart and a perfect system where somebody's at the head and can lord it over everybody. That's not the system. Jesus is first, and this looks nothing like that. His kingdom is made of hands and feet and like fingers and toes. It makes up his body. It's working and serving one another to build up the body of Christ in love, Ephesians 4.16 says. And Paul says in Galatians 6.14, he says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I read that because I think it reiterates what Jesus is getting at. I think it reiterates well what Jesus is saying to his disciples here in Matthew. How, how can we seek rank or reward for anything that we've given up or anything that we've accomplished if every good and perfect gift is from the Father? How can we seek reward for that? If every breath we breathe, the sacrifice we make, word we speak was only made possible through the cross, then the only thing that we have the ability to boast through is through the cross. And so there's nothing that any one of us should be honored for above anybody else. It is Christ who would be honored. You see it? Jesus is restoring our hearts back to what he created them to be. Not to the times of Moses, not to any other time. He's, creating our, he's restoring our hearts back to what he created them to be. And if he has made us able to obey, then we don't obey to receive anything. We obey as a gift. Because obedience, that is true life, is impossible. It's counterintuitive for us. We'll always go our own way. It's impossible for us. But what is impossible? Jesus made possible. See, as our treasure becomes Jesus and his kingdom, our heart's posture changes from feeling owed by God to feeling freed to glorify him with all of our life by loving him and serving our neighbors, right? By having our hearts postured humbly before him and towards others, by putting others first. Life, I think, in community, I know, life in community like that will proclaim Jesus to the world. But the question is, do we really trust that what God says is truly best for us? Or do we actually think that we know better? Do we really trust that what, what he says is best for us is actually best for us? Or do we live contrary, believing that we actually know better? As we move into the season of Lent together as a church, I just want to invite you to purposely lean into the gospel and allow the Holy Spirit to like press into the hardest places in our hearts. Lent kind of has this part of it, right, where you move in and you have to contemplate the brokenness and you have to contemplate the messiness and you have to contemplate, like, what put him on the tree. And that's kind of hard and kind of dark and maybe it doesn't feel like very good news. But it's really good news. So I just invite you to lean into the gospel, allow the Holy Spirit to press into your heart through devotion, prayer, and fasting, this is like a season, this is a time to let the Spirit push into the brokenness and our helplessness before God. But like I said, it is good news because we also then remember that it didn't end at the cross, right? We remember the work of redemption that Jesus accomplished on our behalf through his death and his resurrection. We get to celebrate some more, but first Jesus dies. There's a really big celebration, but first Jesus dies. I'll just ask a couple of questions. Which of the 
Which of the hard parts of the heart that Jesus presses into in these chapters do you identify with the most? These questions are in your bulletin too. I, I just ask that we enter into Lent beginning to think this way. Which of the hard parts of the heart that Jesus presses in on in these two chapters do you identify with most? Like marriage, companionship, singleness, status, wealth, rewards, rank? Is there something else? What's the other thing that you're treasuring more than Jesus, that you're treasuring more than his kingdom? Number two, how does the cross of Jesus Christ address and change your heart's posture before God and towards others? Just practically speaking, uh, practically speaking, just use this season of Lent, starting Wednesday, to go through a devotional. Like I said, there's some resources. I think there's even a link on the bulletin. You go through a devotional, to fast, to pray. And I'd suggest that you spend some time. I, this has just been helpful for me lately. I need it really bad because I'm not content and I, I'm never satisfied and I really need Jesus. Um, I suggest that you spend some time like I have with my kids just to make a place and carve out some space to count your blessings and track them back to the cross. That's the only place you have to boast for anything is through the cross of Jesus. And give thanks. Count your blessings. Track them back to the cross and then give thanks. Let's do it as an experiment and just see how our hearts can be shaped with gratitude. And that can like move us into a heart that gives generously with our whole life. We're going to move into a time of response, which we do every week. We'll have a few, few ways you can respond. The band will come up and they'll lead us through a time of worship through, through music and some prayer. And it's a time where you can sit and you can reflect, you can pray these things. Also, though, we'll have, um, you can also stand and you can worship and sing as well. Uh, it's also a time of communion. In a redemption church, we come down this aisle. We'll have two people, we'll have people on each side serving uh, the bread, and you can take that and you can dip it in the wine or the juice, and this symbolizes the body and the blood of Christ. And as we take it, we're just, we're proclaiming to one another and we're remembering that we're, what Jesus did. We're remembering the redemption that he's bought and paid for for us on the cross. We're remembering uh, and we're, we're saying that this is what we believe, that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he said he, was do, he would do. He's made the impossible possible for us, and we believe it. And we're saying that to each other because we, remi- we need the reminder because we're all forgetful people. So we say it as a reminder to our community that I'm not over you, you're not over me, but we all need Jesus, and Jesus is first. And so that's what we're coming to do is we remember that Jesus died on the cross for us. And so... We invite you to come, whether you're a member of this church or not. If you're a Christian, we invite you to come. If you're not a Christian, if you don't believe that, we don't want you to say that you do. And so we'd ask you to stay where you are, but not because as a punishment or because we don't like you or because we want you to feel awkward, but because we want you to hear what we're saying through our actions and through the proclamation we're making through communion. So take Jesus. He's made the impossible possible. It's counterintuitive. You're not going to choose him on your own. But if he's stirring in you to make to 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 draw yourself to him, if you're beginning to recognize the good news of Jesus Christ, take him. We'll also have a time where you can, uh, we have a basket in the back where you can place your uh, tithes and offerings as an act of worship. Uh, We do that there as well. And then we'll also, this will be a time uh, where we'll move into corporate prayer as well. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you call us friend, that you've called us sons and daughters through his work. 
We thank you that you've taken this group who once was not a people and you've made us a people. Father, we confess, I confess that I'm not there yet. I'm never there yet, that there's still hard spots in my heart that I'm probably not even aware of, but I'm praying that you continue to press in and soften those and that you continue to press in on the hard parts of each one of our hearts, that you continue to, to push us to radically submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. And I'm praying that through Redemption Church, we all continually remember the gospel, that we continue to put, uh, seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that we learn to live in community together in such a way that would proclaim Christ to our community. And Lord, I pray that you would send us out to radically be committed to reaching those that nobody else is reaching, those who do not know you. I pray that during this time, Lord, would you just press in on the hard places of our heart that cause us to ask the question, do we really trust you more than we trust ourselves? Lord, just help us to submit to you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.